Welcome to the Jay Martin Show and the pursuit of personal sovereignty on this channel. We are trying to become our own uncorrelated asset class, not tied to or dependent on the performance of anything outside of our control. And the way we do that is by building bomb-proof portfolios. Now, my guest today is Chris Berry, the founder of House Mountain Partners. Chris is an investor and an analyst focused on the energy metal sector, which is why I wanted to talk to him today, because I'm trying to unpack the implications of the Defense Production Act in the context of the U.S. government allocating an abundance of resources towards the production of strategic metals for the electrification of our planet. I'm talking about nickel, copper, manganese, cobalt, lithium, graphite, etc. What does this really mean for the market? How is this cash deployed? And you know, where should I put my money as a consequence? I hope you enjoyed this interview with Chris. If you like my content, there's a pinned comment right beneath this interview where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I absolutely love writing it and would love to have you join the team. Here's Chris Berry. Enjoy. All right, here we are with Chris Berry, and it's about time that I had you on the show, Chris. It's great to see you. Long overdue, Jay, and it's great to be back with you for sure. Okay, now this is timely because I was chatting to a fellow investor recently and they were asking me my perspective on the electric metal sector and who I should pay or who they should pay attention to. That was their question. Who do you follow in this space? And it's funny, your name came to mind right away. I was like, there's one guy who's been dedicated to this space for as long as I've known him and that's Chris Berry. So talk to me right now, Chris, let's, let's open up with this question. What's the biggest narrative in the energy metal space that investors misunderstand? Does anything come to mind? Well, I think there are a number of things um, going on right now and competing for our investor attention. Probably the one thing I think investors misunderstand or underestimate is the speed that things can happen in terms of change when you combine technological change with deep and liquid capital markets. Um, you know, we are at perhaps a little bit of a crossroads now with interest rates going up, the money getting more expensive, potentially affecting uh, battery costs, something we can maybe chat about. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that I have seen in the 12 plus years that I've been focusing on this space is just what happens when you combine capital uh, excessive capital, for lack of a better phrase, or cheap capital with um, a, a very hungry, if you will, technology sector. And uh, that is the one thing that I have seen. Again, this is sort of the third, I guess, lithium cycle, if you'd like to call it that, right. uh, in my career. And it just seems like everything happens faster and faster uh, in each subsequent cycle. Interesting. Okay. Now, what's What's your thoughts on the, the Defense Production Act? How significant is this in, in the market right now? It's a great question because, you know, the Defense Production Act has actually, it's been around. It was enacted by the U.S. Congress in 1950. So it was a Korean War era um, mandate, if you will. And so basically what that does for, for any of your listeners who aren't aware of what it is, again, it's a congressional uh, mandate. It's a law uh, here in the United States. And what it does is it gives the president of the United States authority to increase investment into the industrial base. Okay. And that's a little bit of a mouthful, but um, I think maybe the best way to think about it is if you think about any vulnerabilities around national security, whether or not it's security supply of raw materials or things like that, the Defense Production Act can effectively expedite either research and development into technologies or 
in case of what has happened just down here in the last couple of weeks, the Defense Production Act can be um, enacted, for lack of a better phrase, by the president to enhance and start to hopefully increase the mining and the supply of critical raw materials, specifically lithium, nickel, cobalt, and I believe manganese is also on the list as well. Um, one other thing that I'll say is that actually President Trump also invoked the DPA during his uh, four years in office. And he actually did it uh, partially because of COVID, but also partially to focus on rare earth elements and uh, I guess minimizing the strategic vulnerability that we have here in the West around rare earths with respect to China. So again, it's nothing new. And if there is a, um, a vulnerability or a, or a lack of punch, if you will, with respect to the DPA, it's the fact that it doesn't really address permitting timeframes or permitting timelines for mines. So obviously, I think one of the challenges that we're all aware of here today is the fact that it can take you anywhere from eight to 10 to 12 years to explore and discover and permit a new mine, regardless of lithium or cobalt or nickel or anything. And you, you just can't have a functioning critical material supply chain where it takes 10 years to lock down the upstream piece, but I could build a battery manufacturing facility or a gigafactory in three to four years. So it doesn't really address what I think are one of the critical vulnerabilities um, here in, in North America. But uh, put it this way, I'd rather have it invoked and enacted than not. So it's just yeah. a question of how hard we want to push. Yeah, that's interesting and surprising to me that it that the breadth doesn't stretch that far, that it cannot impact permitting times and fast track projects that we know to be economic and strategically important, yet are bottlenecked by paperwork, essentially, right? Paperwork. And, and I will say one other thing, just to kind of follow up, there is an aspect of uh, so the, the Defense Production Act has been invoked. And basically, what happens is the president goes to the Department of Defense, the Department of Transportation, his cabinet heads and says, OK, run with this. Tell me what we need to do. And so that actually started off what was called a 100 day supply chain review. And we came back with uh, the department heads, I should say, came back with all sorts of pretty valuable feedback, um, one of which was what I would call an interagency review to understand and identify any gaps or or over overlaps, if you will, with respect to permitting. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. But um, again, we're competing, in my view, with China. We've always talked about this, who has really been focused on developing their own critical material supply chains for, I don't know, the last 15 years. I mean, I can remember reading two or three five-year plans ago of the idea that vehicle electrification in particular was going to be one of seven strategic industries that China was going to focus on. And so, right. you know, they're ahead, but um, the battle is not lost. So I'm, I'm encouraged by what I've seen. Now, do you think the price surges that we've seen in commodities like nickel, so integral to production of electric vehicles, are going to slow down adoption because it's going to be very tough for car, for car manufacturers to keep these vehicles at price points that consumers can, can actually afford? What do you think? I think I like to say that the whole EV push, if you will, um, is delayed, but not denied. Okay. It would be one thing if, you know, you looked at the components of a lithium ion battery and of course the lithium and the cobalt and the nickel and the copper and the aluminum, everyone sort of focuses on those mm. um, and the manganese as well. Don't want to forget manganese. But my point is that if one of those raw materials sees a price spike, 
Okay. But everything else roughly stays within a range. You know, you're okay. It's really not going to hurt um, profitability of the battery manufacturers that much or of the OEMs that much. But when you have a situation where lithium costs go up 500%, um, copper, nickel, as you mentioned, Nick, the whole, the entire nickel market, I would argue is frozen right now because mm. of what's happened on the LME. So mm. there is no price discovery now with nickel in particular, which again, I think impedes long-term investment making decisions. The problem is when all of your raw material costs go up all at once, you know, how do you hedge? What, what do you do if you're further down the supply chain? So look, it, it's going to be great. It is great if you're a mining play or even a near-term mining play, but it does and it will, um, I would argue, you know, delay but not deny that moment in time when an, when an EV on a total cost of ownership basis becomes cheaper than an internal combustion engine car. I think most of us in the business would have thought that, you know, if, if that battery cost deflation that we've seen since 1990 continues, probably by you know, 2025, excuse me, was the tipping point. Now, you know, it really depends if, if what we're seeing with respect to inflation in the economy is, again, structural or, or more cyclical. Um, 2026, 2027, I think, is a, is a safer bet. And so as an investor, I think, okay, you just want to think about where you allocate capital along the supply chain. And, you know, I think it's going to be continue to be a really, really positive environment for these battery metals miners for probably at least the next couple of years. Right. Now, nickel, lithium, cobalt, graphite, you mentioned manganese. Where are you most? Is there one commodity, Chris, that you are most excited about and paying the most attention to? Yeah. You know, I think that... Um, it's funny. We've, if we had this conversation 18 months ago, might have been might have been a slightly different, uh, well, would, would have been a somewhat sl slightly different um, answer, but you've got to be excited about copper. Um, you know, the again, I didn't mention good. I, well, yeah, I, I, if, if you're going to put me in a corner and say, what do you love right now? I would say lithium um, and, and, and copper. And I'm starting to do a lot more work outside of the battery business in uranium in particular. Don't don't have much to say about it yet. But, you know, I, I just think that as we re really think hard about this green transition, I mean, look what's happened to fossil fuel prices, right? They've gone through the roof because clearly our energy infrastructure, in my view, globally is not ready to just make that make that switch and so nuclear has to play a role okay yeah. but back to your back to your original question um i'm still optimistic i'm still bullish about lithium um you know i do think that pricing in the near term in the spot market in china has topped out um for those of you who haven't been paying attention lithium uh battery grade lithium carbonate today in china is trading for about seventy-five thousand dollars a ton that's us and again in about 18 months ago it was at about $7,000 a ton. Okay. So again, this is a challenge for battery manufacturers and OEMs to a certain degree, but, um, you know, I worry a little bit about how much more upside there is in, in the pricing there. Um, about 90% of what happens in the lithium market is all traded based on contracts. So again, it's going to be great for the miners because these contracts are going to reset at higher and higher, um, dollar values. So really optimistic about lithium miners going forward, just based on demand, because lithium in particular 
is the one element here, the one metal that is really not substitutable, regardless of, of your battery chemistry view. And again, copper, as I said before, much bigger, deeper liquid market, but that is really um, the backbone, I think, of this whole electrification thesis. It goes way beyond cars, yeah. Um, yeah. the whole infrastructure play. And nickel, would you say as well? To, as to a degree. To a, uh, to a degree, you know, right now, again, nickel, if lithium today is a 500,000 ton a year market, nickel's probably 2.7, maybe 2.9 million tons. So again, it is a lot bigger. Um, we're in a situation today where maybe 10% of the nickel that is produced, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 15% goes into the battery business that is going to grow dramatically. Um, you know, the challenge of course, with nickel is that you talked earlier about geopolitics. Um, when you look at Russia and everything that's happening there, uh, obviously, I think oil and gas gets a lot of press, as it should, because Russia is a major producer and exporter. But they also produce around 8 or 9% of global nickel capacity or global nickel production. And perhaps more importantly than that, about 18% of what we call class 1 nickel. And the class 1 nickel, just to keep it nice and, you know, brief here, um, is required for high nickel, high energy density batteries um, that would use nickel in their chemistry. And so you're talking about taking 18% of um, this critical material out of the market. When I say out of the market, well, it will probably end up in China. It just won't go to Europe or the US. And so the question yeah. becomes, how are we in the West going to replace 20% uh, of this critical material at sort of reasonable and under any sort of reasonable time frame. Interesting conundrum for the OEMs in particular. And you've started to see automotive players in particular kind of leapfrog their suppliers saying, you know, a company like General Motors or Tesla is a great example saying, you know, we're not going to rely on our battery manufacturers to source nickel or these other materials. We're going to go directly to the miners. And so Tesla has yeah. done that probably better than anybody else. Yeah. And I think they're setting a trend, right? I expect to see more of that. You know, it's interesting. I didn't know, Chris, what class one nickel was until I think I saw you tweeting about it recently, right? And that, that 18, 20% number coming out of Russia is therefore super significant, right? Um, that's a huge chunk of the market in addition to being the world's, as you said, largest exporter of natural gas, the world's yep. largest exporter of wheat. Um, yeah, yep. this, the, the power dynamics at play here are really, really consequential. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, um, so the question... No, please go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, just again, just to reiterate. So if you're going to take 18% of a critical material out of the battery supply chain, and again, it, it goes to China, let's, let's just assume China is kind of its own world, if you will, or its own market from a battery perspective. How are we in the West going to expedite nickel production and fill that gap? And there's plenty of what we call class two nickel pig iron out there coming from Indonesia, other parts of the world. Okay. But um, again, it comes at a cost. And with the LME, in my view, frozen as a price discovery mechanism, I mean, what, what is the true price of nickel? I think a good long-term assumption is twenty dollars to $23,000 a ton, lower than where it is today, but um, still kind of how I, what I think needs to happen in the nickel market to satisfy potential demand. Interesting. Okay. Um, you mentioned you're optimistic on lithium miners. Can I get you to touch on geography that you like? Are you specific about that? Are you factoring in geopolitical risk right now? What are your thoughts? You know, a lot of, a lot of the lithium uh, that is produced 
fortunately, I would argue, is not subject to a lot of the same geopolitical risks, for example, that cobalt is, where 65% of the cobalt that's produced comes out of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, I would say that, um, and you know, lithium really comes out of two, two geographies, if you will, the brine um, sources in South America and the hard rock sources in Australia. I think it's important to remember that lithium in and of itself is not rare. Okay. You could mine it for, you could extract it from seawater if you absolutely had to, I wouldn't recommend that. And I don't really see that happening anytime soon, but you know, uh, Chile as uh, one of the largest lithium producing countries in the world is, is a very interesting case study. And I would argue in many ways is at crossroads in terms of not just lithium production, but copper production. A new president was just elected there, and he is is leftward leaning. I think it's fair to say, yeah. um, which is not really an opinion. It's just more a statement of fact. And and with that comes concerns around resource nationalism or rethinking, um, you know, uh, permitting and rethinking royalties and things like that. I'm not predicting that, but Chile is undergoing a process where they're rewriting their constitution okay which just injects risk and it re- and it injects uncertainty um but you know so that, that's something to keep in mind i think it's interesting that as we're talking about south america when you look at uh you look at argentina and you look at chile in particular let's assume bolivia is still a no-go zone for foreign direct deals that took place last year globally all took place in argentina Okay. Um, so I think that says a lot about how, well, I don't know if it's lithium investors or just the capital markets in particular are thinking about, um, investing in these critical material supply chains, given what's happening in Chile versus what's happening in Argentina. So something to keep an eye on. I'm actually pretty bullish about Argentina's prospects out over the next few years. And I just think that, you know, Chile is a little bit of a wait and see, because again, in addition to the rewrite of the constitution, which may, may amount to nothing, right? We just don't know. But for new projects, both on the copper and the lithium side, there is a possibility of, of higher royalties. So some which could impact economics. Um, so again, just something to keep on the radar. That's how I'm sort of looking at it. Yeah, that's okay. Interesting. All right. Look, Chris, it's been great having you on. Thanks so much for making the time. I hope you can make it to our show uh, next month up in Vancouver, BC. It'd be great to have you on stage and in person. So I'm going to try. Yeah. You bet. Awesome. awesome. All right. Thanks again, man. Thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.